A note to the listener. Warning, this episode deals with alcoholism and suicide. Please be advised. If you or someone you know is contemplating suicide, there are resources available online at www.cdc.gov suicide and over the phone at the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, 1-800-273-8255. Thank you for listening to Rituals of Our Mothers. I'm your host, Amy Jones, and this is episode four of season one. Today, my guest is Shannon LeBaugh. Shannon is one of my very best friends, one of my closest companions, and she truly has been a guiding light through the last basically two decades of my life. I really do feel like Shannon's story is of the utmost importance to share. She has such an incredible way of sharing her story. Um, It is filled with tragedy and sadness, and at the end of it, the light of the human spirit. That being said, it is a graphic story, so I just want to let you know that in advance. And throughout the theme of the story is truly healing and again the triumph the victory and the healing of the human spirit i truly hope that you gain some wisdom from the story and really get insight into the human existence around alcoholism and suicide and that also at the end of the story for you is a bit of hope and healing thank you To begin, I want to say thank you for taking the time for the interview, and I'm super excited to be interviewing you, especially because we're so close and I know so much of your story, and I think it's really important to share your story. So starting off with that, um, how are you feeling today in regards to sharing your story? Because I know it's not something that you really allow a lot of people to hear. Uh, Well, I'm ready to do that. I feel ready to do that. Great. And um, were you thinking about it pre this conversation? Were you you have some stuff on your mind? Yeah. And I even have taken notes. That's what I love about you. (laughs) So thorough and just such a wonderful planner and prepare. So I'm ready to go forward. Okay. So let's talk about your mom. What, what are some of the things that you want to start off with that you feel is important to share about your mother just right off the bat? Well, right off the bat, I'll tell you that my mother and my father were both what you would call beatniks. They were super hip and very stylish very artistic, very, very liberal and left wing, uh, which was wonderful. It was a wonderful climate in which to grow up in our home. We were, we were surrounded by intellectuals and free thinkers. My dad was a rocket scientist and engineer at NASA. And my mother at the time was uh, just a home. I shouldn't say just, but she was a homemaker and 
we lived in a nice neighborhood and they had a lot of parties. My mother was a musician, a trained and very accomplished pianist. And they were kind of like the rock stars in my world. My dad was very good looking. He also was a musician besides being, you know, a scientist and they dressed super cool and they listened to great music. They used to go see the doors at the whiskey and I mean like cool stuff like that. So I remember from a very, very early age, almost idolizing them the way people idolize movie stars and musicians and it really was very much like that for me in my relationship with with my mom in that I worshiped her from afar she had so many amazing qualities and she was very beautiful she was five foot eight and she wore two inch heels so that made her five foot ten or more and she had been a model um, she was tall and thin she was the perfect kind of idealized woman of the mid and late 60s I was born in 1965 and as I grew older I really became to realize there was quite a distance between us. And, and just like when you worship a movie star or a musician on the stage, you, you're not really close to them, but yet you're in love with them or they're the center of your world and mm -hmm. you're obsessed with them and you've never even actually met them. And in a way, I really never even met my mother Almost until the end of her life, there was such a such a huge distance between us. Uh, she had not wanted to be a parent. She got pregnant and my dad did the right thing and they got married. My mother had been in nursing school and she was a model on the side mm. and she was a musician. She wanted to be a free person in the 60s. And then she ended up with the cage door slammed behind her in a little house in suburbia that my grandparents bought for them on their wedding day. Uh, they had wanted to cage her all her life. She'd been the black sheep and she'd been the wild one. Mm. And so she resented me from the beginning. I didn't know that until almost the end of her life. She died when I was 33. Oh, wow. So until that time, I just knew that we weren't close. And as I grew into the teenage years, we became enemies through a series of unfolding events and traumas. Um, my parents divorced when I was seven. She wanted out. It was her idea. She wanted to be free. She wanted to date whoever she wanted to date. And she wanted to party. And she... She really wanted to get out there and, and enjoy life as a single person, which she hadn't really gotten to. I mean, she was barely 21 when she had me. So she had not even reached the drinking age, you know, when she got pregnant. Right. Um, my mother was an alcoholic. She was also addicted to prescription pills from a very early age. The doctors prescribed her black beauties to help her lose weight for her modeling career. 
So she, you could just imagine what that must have been like to have a 21 year old mom who was amped up on speed and then drinking wine from three o'clock onward with all the other suburban moms. I have to say she was not an isolated case. This was how it was right in the sixties for Mm -hmm. upper middle-class white moms, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't have anything to do. So, so they, they really the valley of the dolls that's what it was and that was in la Cunada, california which is still a very shishi suburb of los angeles to this day mm-hmm. my mother hated it there so when they got divorced of course it broke it broke me and she felt set free my father had been closer with me than my mother had. He actually wanted to have children and wanted to have a family. And when he'd come home from his long days at work, he would take the time to play with me. He tucked me in at night. He read me the good night stories. I don't even have a memory of my mother tucking me in at night. I don't have a single memory of her reading me a good night story. My father really did all of the nurturing parenting that occurred in our home. And he was also an alcoholic. So, so he was really there, but also kind of not there. Right. Because he would ha- start having sips of wine as soon as he got home from his long day at, at JPL at Nassau, sending men to the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, so I lost the only person who I felt really loved me when my parents got divorced. We saw him on the weekends. It was never the same. Mm-hmm. And I was never given a chance to feel those feelings about losing my dad. There was never a conversation about it. We just literally packed up in the middle of the night one night when they had a fight and never went back, never went back to my home. Wow. Yeah. And there was no explanation to me about what happened or no one told me, well, we're never going home again. We just all of a sudden had a different house, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was, I felt very isolated with my mother then after they were separated and I received almost no nurturing time from her. There were no conversations. There was no checking in on me. There was no inquiries. She did not brush my hair. She did not brush, help me brush my teeth. I would go to school and the teachers would brush my hair for me and to get the tangles out and keep me in at recess to help me look more presentable and give me some care and this made me feel very marginalized and like a second-class citizen this gives you a little bit of an idea of the great chasm between my mother and I and the the lack of parenting that occurred then and my mother's drinking really ramped up after they got divorced because she was free and nobody she was not accountable to anybody Right. Uh, Even though you were with her, even though she had children. Right. Yes. Oh yeah. We did not, you know, my sister and I didn't really count and we didn't really matter. I didn't understand anything about trauma or alcoholism or family dynamics until much later in my life when I was in my twenties and Uh, I started going to therapy and I started going to 12-step programs myself. And I came to understand that my mother's behavior and her personality 
were a result of some severe trauma she suffered in her early childhood. And after I learned about that, I had a different approach to her. Um, but in between my early childhood and my coming to understand the nature and the genesis of her personality disorders, we really went through some rocky times. And the most significant event of my life before I left my family home occurred on my, uh, near my 16th birthday. At the time I was getting straight A's in school. I had really become a diligent student and I had a lot of plans and dreams for myself. And I had done this all myself. My mother didn't ever even look at my grades or my homework. She did not care. There was zero discipline in my family, which I thought was great at the time. Right. <laughs> it was the seventies and mm -hmm. you know, I never got in trouble for anything and I could do whatever I wanted. And other kids thought that my house was so fun and free and it was, and it also w was not boundaried and there was no direction and there was nobody checking in. And I had no accountability. My mom's religion was zero accountability. Mm. and zero boundaries so I had done this for myself and I had built myself up into an amazing place for somebody who was 16 I had even taken classes in high school over a second time to get a better grade in them so I could have a better GPA wow so that I could get into a better college and I had done this with the help of counselors at my school and my own steam my mother didn't even have any idea what I was doing over there and one night they, she and my stepdad, she was remarried by this time to a pretty great guy. They had gone out drinking. They came home completely blasted. My mother was a blackout drinker, by the way. This is a significant part of our story. And she dug out my diary from my bedroom. Uh, she was accusing me of being uh, loose and slutty. She had heard something about a friend of mine through the grapevine in our town. I mean, it was so vague and totally untrue. I hadn't had any kind of relationships with boys that were anything beyond kissing at the time. I was super straight. Uh -huh. I really was the opposite of my mom and the opposite of what she thought I was. She was projecting onto me, but I didn't know that then. So she, I said, mom, what are you talking about? She was enraged. She was absolutely, she was a rageaholic when she got drunk. She was yelling and screaming and tearing the house apart. And she went and got my diary from my bedroom, which proved that I had not had any sexual activity in my life, but that I had indulged and sampled some psychedelic drugs at one point, <sighs> which of course, looking back was one of the formative and most positive events of my life. Right. <laughs> 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 and even though she was so wild and so quote unquote free, she couldn't accept that. And it set her off because it was not what she was expecting to find. And for some reason, it made her go even more crazy, which I didn't understand then. And I still don't even understand today. I think that she just needed any reason, any trigger to go crazy. And she ran into the bathroom and like, it's like two in the morning by this time. And my stepdad and I were sitting outside. He was trying to calm me down and she didn't come out of the bathroom. 
for a long time. And we were pounding on the door by this time. And there was no answer from her in the bathroom. The water was running. My stepdad went and got a butter knife. He jimmied open the door. We opened up the door and there was my mom. She had cut her wrists and there was blood everywhere. And she looked me straight in the eye and in the most hideous, hate-filled voice, she said, this is all your fault. Oh my God. And I just remember going completely hysterical at that time. And my stepfather, he put his arms around me and he held me in a bear hug. And I was just, I don't, I've never been hysterical in my life, except for that time. I do, I'm not a hysterical person. And he got me out of the area and then I guess attended to my mother and I have, it's blank for me after that for several hours. Mm -hmm. And then the next morning it was like nothing had happened. I, my mother was sitting there with her wrists all wrapped up and I walk in the room and she looks at me and she just says, get her out of here. Whoa. With the most hate I have ever seen on somebody's face. Now, let me tell you, I didn't understand what I could have possibly done. At this time, I didn't know that I was an unwanted, unplanned pregnancy. I didn't know that my mother never wanted to be a mom and wanted to be free. I did not know until that moment that she blamed me for every bit of unhappiness in her life. And she had all along. I didn't unravel all that until I was in my twenties and started in therapy. So the rift in our relationship after that was, it was not bridgeable. And I went down the, the mountain at that point and my grades started to slip. I got mono, my body manifested a, Mm, mm -hmm. you know, an illness in order to process it. I didn't tell one single human being what had happened outside my family. And I had a best friend who I told everything at the time. I never told her what happened. I shoved that all down inside and it cracked me like an earthquake at the San Andreas fault. And I didn't understand the level of the trauma that that caused because she was my, she was the love object. She was the person whose love I wanted more than anyone's. Right. And I had kind of somehow believed that she loved me my whole life up until then, because I didn't know any other way of interacting with a parent. She was my only real mother model. I thought that's what a mother's love looked like. And then I knew in that moment that that was all a lie and that she hated me. And it undid me. Now, my story from there on out is a long story, and I'm not going to go into it in particulars, except to say that I lost every bit of momentum and foothold that I had gained in my life. I dropped out of school. I had all kinds of things happen. I became a serious uh, drug and alcohol user, and I ended up getting sober when I was 24 years old because it was so bad that Mm -hmm. I was already sick by age 24. And then I started to climb up again. And in that time between my sobriety and my mother's death, which was nine years, I figured out a lot of things with her. And I did have the opportunity to tell her 
what had happened. And she did not have a single recollection of that because she'd been in a total blackout. And all the years that I had been angry and hurt and had acted out and gotten into trouble, she didn't know why, because she had disassociated from that event 100%. And when I told her what had happened, she was mortified and she said she was sorry and it was real. Mm -hmm. And she took her own life two weeks later. She, uh, she took her life when she was 54 Mm -hmm. and I was 33. Mm. And, uh, you know, it, it, that really, it, I was devastated by my mother's suicide. Uh, of course, um, as anyone would be, but because there was this history of her telling me that that suicide attempt was my attempt was because of me, her unhappiness was my fault. When she actually successfully killed herself deeply unconsciously, I was blaming myself and I didn't know that for years mm-hmm. and my life a second time <laughs> began to disintegrate and I found myself in some very terrible places and in some very weird relationships and because I was trying to still work things out with my mother um, uh, but we did have we had the redemption moment Mm-hmm. before she passed and at one point she even said to me you know I just only have ever wanted to be loved and I heard her and I said to her oh my god I totally understand and I'm so sorry because I had been so mean to her in my adulthood of course after that hideous night of bloody nightmarish hate right I we were absolute enemies after that and I heard her lament and her plea and her longing for love and nurturance. And we, we came together at the very end and I'm so grateful for that. It has saved me really. It really has. And I find it interesting that she said to you exactly what you had felt all your life was that you just wanted to be loved. Right. She was saying, I mean, it's a mirror right there is your, you and your mother, because she was, I feel like her, she was so consumed with feeling that way. She couldn't see that there were people right in front of her, in particular, you, that was yearning and aching and longing to, to give love to her. Exactly. And then after we had that terrible event, I withheld all my love from her. And so it became a self-fulfilling prophecy for, of her own making. Mm-hmm. And yours was to protect. And surely because of her trauma and her wounds, she was the result of all of that. And you, the same, protected yourself after experiencing such a devastating blow to the psyche and to your whole system at 16 years old oh yeah and you know I had a I had a 
similar situation with my mother of not, you know, not to the same extreme, but it, but a situation where she felt one thing about me, and I was the complete opposite. I, I actually wasn't, you know, in that place that she thought I was. I was the only one out of my friends that was, you know, kind of living this like straight and narrow, straight and narrow life. And um, it, to me, the attack that came from that was this feeling of like, powerlessness from the mother this feeling of like I'm not in charge I don't know I didn't have control over this situation that exploration that you had with the psychedelic drugs to me almost feels like it came at came at your mother like an abandonment she didn't she couldn't reach you anymore because you had gone to a place Mm. that had not been that was not in her control it was beyond something she knew and sorry were you going to say something that's an interesting perspective on that that I had never considered and I think that that makes a lot of sense well it just sort of hit me because as you were sharing your story I was remembering this time that I had smoked weed and I I mean I couldn't have been more than 19 or 20 years old I was still living at home and the, the weed was laced with cocaine and I didn't know that. I wasn't a cocaine user, but I was apparently that night. And it set me over the edge. I had a terrible, horrifyingly scary reaction to it. And um, the next day I decided to tell my mother and her partner at the time, and her partner at the time was a retired biker so he was kind of edgy and had done every drug on the planet and lived a rambunctious lifestyle so when I went in there I was in tears and I I shared you know this is something that happened to me um I was very scared I'm telling you guys because I want you to know it'll never happen again I just was I needed to talk about it and he really heard me and he understood and he said you know you either had some weed laced with coke or you had um some really strong weed but it sounds like the the latter so um you know just be careful and I felt heard in the moment and then later that night I was asleep And my mother burst into my room and woke me up from my sleep and was yelling and screaming. And if you're doing drugs, you're not going to live under my house. And, you know, it was, it was a nightmare. It was, I felt like I was being attacked in the middle of the night. I didn't know I was half asleep. I didn't know where it was coming from. And in the moment when you were sharing your story and I had this same it was like visceral response to that feeling of absolute violation. I went somewhere that perhaps my mother had never ventured to. And for me, it was terrifying. You went the route of psychedelics and you had amazing experiences, but it was a place. Yeah. I should have gone that route at that time, but I didn't. So anyway, but we went to these places that was unreachable to them. Mm. And it was like we were freed from the burden of that oppression or that, you know, uh, judgment or whatever it was that we were living with. And I feel like that was more bothersome than anything else. 
It had nothing to do with, oh, they're doing drugs or oh, they had a bad trip or whatever. In my case, it was that I had gone to a place that was unknown. Right. And yeah, that's interesting. And I really do feel, Shannon, that that has something to do with that. Um, you know, as uh, we both are familiar with alcoholism and alcoholics. And so that place that feels that's uncontrollable it's so scary and for some reason I know like when I was drinking I felt like I was in control but it's you're out of control absolutely you're totally out of control but there's this part that feels like oh I have control over this I have control over my drinking I have control over what's going to happen and then you reach that place and so that sort of mentality is it's all about control and I feel like parents that are alcoholics are all about controlling something because the drinking is actually out of control and so they right. typically it's the children it's the children that are being controlled constantly right well and they the reason they drink and the reason their drinking is out of control is because they don't feel in control inside themselves of who they are of what they're feeling and that is almost always rooted in their own childhood trauma because all children do not have power. All children feel out of control of their environment. And this is why healthy, positive adult parenting and positive regulation of the environment creates a healthy psyche. And when you don't have that, you have children that feel scared all the time walking on eggshells, unsure of everything. Mm -hmm. And those children grow up to be people who feel out of control of everything all the time. And we try to find anything to latch onto that we can control. Eating Mm -hmm. disorders, cleanliness, overworking, alcoholism, drug abuse, uh, you name it. I mean, like, It's because we felt so disempowered and afraid and powerless and panicky in an unsafe home situation as children that we become this in adulthood. Mm -hmm. And this was true for my mother because she was a very loved and wanted child. My grandmother, her mother had had eight miscarriages before my mother was conceived. So she was the golden child. Mm. And she was beautiful. She looked like freaking Shirley Temple with the red ringlets and green eyes and these little chubby cheeks. And I mean, she was adorable. (laughs) And everything was peaches and cream and perfection. My grandparents had money. They loved one another. They had a wonderful relationship. They had a great home. And then... A serpent entered the garden in the form of an orphaned child from another branch of the family, a boy who was adopted by my grandparents and who I believe had been abused himself. Mm -hmm. He was a teenager and he began to abuse my mother, I'm sure, because he had been abused and... Mm -hmm because he was jealous of her specialness to my grandparents. Right. His own mother had died, I believe, possibly at the hands of his father. Mm. And there was a lot of strange shadowy stuff uh, in the background here for this young man. So he was a victim. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, victims victimize and abuse. Those who have been abused, abuse others. Mm-hmm. And my mother was sexually abused uh, violently by a group of teenage boys when she was only four years old, of which this boy was one. And her life and the life of my parents and their household was never the same. It never healed. There was, the joy was gone. The light had gone out. My grandparents were broken. They had no context for this. Mm -hmm. There had not been a history of abuse in that family of mine that I can trace. This came in from the side, Mm -hmm. from someone who was from outside of our lineage. And the, the immediate stain that has spread through the generations is remarkable. And the power of trauma and abuse and violence and Mm -hmm. sexual predation leaves a mark that is indelible and it becomes hardwired immediately into the generational situation of a family. Right. Generational trauma is real. It is. It plays out in so many ways. And my mother was this child who was on the one hand literally held aloft on a silken pillow and given the best of everything and wanted and loved and cared for and nurtured and then had suffered gravely injuriously over a long period of time Uh you know before it was found out and I think even afterwards I think it continued but just maybe not as overtly Um, so my mother was broken she was broken down the middle and she was a Jekyll Hyde personality as Uh is that makes perfect sense in light of her duality of of her childhood um when she was not drinking she was absolutely wonderful and she loved all people and all animals and as i said we had no prejudice in our home we had friends of every ethnicity we honored and and entertained people from every faith and different countries and she had a boyfriend an african-american boyfriend from who's a soccer player from Brazil. She had a boyfriend who was from Hungary. He was a Hungarian Jewish man. I mean, it was such a wonderful rainbow of culture in our Uh home in the 70s. And then the minute she would take a drink, she became a rage-filled monster spitting fire. And we would run and cower in fear. Uh And I mean, the difference between the two halves of her were so dramatic and stark. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing what can happen to someone's mind because of trauma and abuse in their childhood. Mm-hmm. And then, and then throwing in alcohol and drug addiction. And that's, you know, I remember when I was, um, when I was becoming sober, my sponsor at the time had said to me, if you're dealing with an alcoholic, it's, it, you're dancing with a viper. It's only a matter of time before you get bit. And it's, it as a child dealing with that, it's really hard to like 
rationalize anything. I mean, as I had an interview with another woman talking about how we compartmentalize to survive and to just maintain what we can to survive in the situation. I mean, your story is just, it's heartbreaking, it's breathtaking, and yet there's this will to survive that is so strong within you. And I do believe knowing some of your family that that will to survive exists in in your family. I mean, that is something that wasn't lost. And so that being said, I'm, I, there was a question that was sort of lingering in the back of my mind. And it might be a loaded question, but I feel it's important to ask. So the, the second time that your mother attempted suicide and was successful, alongside the heartache and the gut-wrenching experience, was there also relief? Oh, absolutely. My mother's personality had uh, disintegrated so terribly and she had developed mm. so many mental health issues in the last 10 years of her life, we could barely be in the room together. Uh, she was unmanageable. She was agoraphobic. She was anorexic. She was bipolar. She was, I don't know if hoarding, hoarding is really what she was doing, but she would never clean anything. Mm. Everything was just layers of dust she didn't really collect things there was you know room to move but there was no cleaning allowed and she even stopped cleaning herself she she didn't go out of the house really for like the last 10 years of her life she was so sadly broken but it she was so filled with anger it was hard to be compassionate and do things for mm -hmm. her so when she died I mean yeah it was horrible and as it played out over the few years at following her her suicide I was just really broken and devastated with grief and sadness but that first halt family holiday following her death we all sat at the table going oh my god it feels so great and relaxed mm -hmm. because she wasn't there at the table glowering at everybody and yelling and freaking out and going crazy because by that point, that's all we got from her. She was just completely over the edge in the last few years of her life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, somebody even said, ding dong, the witch is dead. Mm. You know, it really, it's a terrible mixed bag of feelings when someone who has been that mentally ill and that difficult and that negative and that bitter passes away. Mm -hmm. you you can't help but be relieved on a certain level and you know at this point now in my life I have forgiven my mother I have done so much work um, and even with all the work and therapy that I've done in the last 20 years I'm I'm 56 now since her death I wasn't able to forgive my mom until last year in 2020 after my father passed away. And after his funeral, I was alone for several hours and everything flooded through me. And I 
was washed clean of my anger and resentment towards both of my parents. It literally was a miracle. It was a miracle. It was a miraculous relieving of my burden. And Mm. I didn't do it. It was done for me Mm -hmm. because I had tried and tried and tried to forgive both of them. Because by that time I had all this list of resentments against my father too. Our, all the relationships had just deteriorated and there was really nothing there. The bridge was out on all fronts. So at this point today, I have nothing in my mind and heart, but deep empathy and compassion for the terrible that both my parents lived through and lived out and the tragedy of the lost chance of closeness and warmth mm-hmm. and the real love between us that we didn't have we missed that mm-hmm. we we can't get that back and i'm sad for all of us for what we lost Yes, And for the choices we were not able to make towards closeness and warmth and heartfelt interaction while they were alive. And the anger is gone. I used to be so angry and I boiled with rage and I stomped around all the time and I was really a type A personality and I had to be busy every minute and I was controlling and I would order everybody around. And I tell you, since that day of my dad's funeral, when this was taken away from me, I am not that person anymore because my resentment and my anger has left me. Yeah. And so coming to that place, you speak of the having the compassion and the empathy, and I want to kind of bridge that now to the rituals the and I know you so I I've seen and heard some stories about your mother some glorious stories about who she was and what she was into etc and so can you share a little bit because in, from this be- the beauty of this healing place of this healed place really what can you share in regards to a ritual or an act of self self-care especially because of the disease of alcoholism it's really you know hard sometimes to find that in our in our mothers in our parents that struggle with that disease so were you able to find that i i was and i really appreciate this opportunity to turn a lens on my mother's life searching for beautiful things Mm. and searching for moments where she felt good and cared about herself. Because really, if I can say one thing about my mother's dilemma and situation was that she was immersed in self-loathing. And she would say that as much. She really hated herself. And, um, It was hard to find something of a ritual and I've had to look pretty deeply and I found a thing that was a daily ritual and I'll tell you my mother was not a day drinker (laughs) she she always had a job until the very end of her life but when I was young 
she always had a job. She was a really good worker. She was a really good data entry person and secretary and receptionist. And she was beautiful. And every morning she would get up very, very early. She was wholly undisciplined, except for in this one area. She would get up very early, make herself a cup of coffee, put on the morning news, and then perch on her big, beautiful brass bed, which was like a throne. It was a 70s thing. Mm-hmm. And she, <laughs> I remember those brass beds. <laughs> and the TV was there in her bedroom. <laughs> and that, And she would do her makeup ritual every morning. And because she'd been a model, she had learned a lot of really amazing makeup techniques and tricks and she used them all believe me she looked like a million dollars when she would leave the house I gotta Mm, tell you mm. and she had all these different things there was a mask that would happen and then there was this moisturizing cream that would sit for 10 minutes and she would do her she would do her manicure her polish every day new and fresh on her toes and her fingers so she'd have her feet up on her bed with the cotton balls between mm-hmm. her toes <laughs> and she would smoke a cigarette with her fingers spread wide so as not to mess up the wet nail polish on her hands and she would love to watch the morning news and sip the coffee and have the smoke and be doing this beauty treatment and my god with the bronzer because you know in the 70s you look tan right. and <laughs> the amazing like false eyelashes that she applied one by one with a tweezer and the special glue they were magnificent and she always wore dark brown fingernail polish and toenail polish Mm. and dark brown or copper and gold lipstick oh she had green eyes and red hair she only wore earth tones or black and white. She wore very tailored clothes, riding boots and a black silk shirt mm. and jeans with a big giant brass buckle and a leather belt and like a bohemian leather bag. And her hair was super long and had blonde streaks in the front. I mean, and she'd wear big giant gold hoop earrings. She was just amazing to look at. And this was her project every day. She created this amazing persona to take out into the world. And, you know, it was her beautiful suit of armor. Uh And she, she was happy in those morning moments. She would hum and she would wiggle her toes and she would laugh and it it was a good time to interact with her if I came through her room something funny to say she was very funny when she was in her good places and and, you know we'd make fun of things on the television and she'd clown and make goofy faces and you know stick the cotton balls up her nose I mean she really was great in those (laughs) times but I really remember that ritual morning every morning Mm -hmm. And in the later part of her life, she no longer performed that ritual. Mm-hmm. And, and I knew that that was a time when she had lost a lot. And I think what really sticks out to me, and this is something that I was really feeling in, in my own story, that it's 
I think it's the part that has made me really want to do the to work on this project and share this project with the world and that is the threads of similarity from woman to woman, mother to mother. And what I'm hearing you say more than anything is that she was accessible during that morning ritual. She actually was there and present and accessible. Yes, really so much. And her style was so gorgeous and so developed and so sophisticated and as I grew into my teenage years, I, of course, would say I hated all that. Mm-hmm. I was never going to wear a black <laughs> right. back and I was <laughs> never going to look like that. And of course, now I look almost exactly like that. And I thank my mom every couple of days for the awesome sense of style that she imparted upon me and those moments of self-care that I witnessed because I put creams on my face every night and I invest in good beauty products and I take really good care of my hair. My mom had gorgeous hair, even up until she died. She'd have me come over and help her color it and mm. cut it and wash it. And she had long hair till she, till she passed away. And it was just beautiful. It was shown like gold in the sun, you know? Uh, and I, I have taken those good parts now consciously, uh, previously unconsciously, and I have not just embraced them, but I'm cultivating them. Mm. And that is where I honor my mother. I mean, I even have actual articles of her jewelry that I wear, and I have hunted down items of clothing that are exact replicas of mm-hmm. things that she owned mm-hmm. because I want to honor that because it looks so damn good. <laughs> Well, I do know you and you have amazing hair that would create envy in anyone and your style is incredible. And so I think that I I have such a great visual going on in my mind and also in my heart of your mother. And I think that that's so wonderful. And it's, it's that thing of like, if, if your mother if your mother had been healthy, well, you get to see what that would have looked like by looking at yourself. And when you have your ritual at night um, or in the morning and whatever that is, when you're putting your makeup on or getting dressed and it's like, yes, we are still this part of our mother, this beautiful part that, that we might miss. I had, I shared this in another interview that I had said to a friend once after cutting my hair that no matter what I do to my hair I still look like my mother and at the time it drove me crazy and now not so much and I think that that's that beauty and that grace and that acceptance and seeing the the treasures those pearls of our mothers and that's been something that's been really hard I mean I think this project has already brought me in touch with so many women that have had such such difficult and challenging relationships with their mothers. It's been really important to talk about it and to share. And at the end of it, there's laughter and there's love, regardless of how it all began or how it all ended. There's still laughter and love. And I think that that's, that is the fruit of this labor of this project is finding that pearl and and being able to cherish it. 
Because I think that that can be the hardest part with these relationships. Yes. And I really am super grateful for having this clear image of my mother performing that wonderful morning ritual. And, and I was lucky that I got to say some things to my mother before she died that were real and needed to be said. But one thing I didn't say, because I didn't even have it to say yet, Mm. was thank you for that. Thank you for that example of feminine beauty and style and grace and awesomeness Mm -hmm. that I now emulate Mm -hmm. to the point of complete imitation. I am so grateful and I, I love my mom's style and I never got to say that to her. I, I wish I could have made her feel more appreciated in that way. You know, my own daughter says the nicest things to me about how I look. She Mm. always has something kind and positive to say, even when I'm feeling crazy looking, she'll (laughs) say, Oh mom, you look awesome. You are, you look great every day. And I wish I had said that to my mom because you know what? Mostly she really looked great every day. She really did. Mm -hmm. Well, I believe that she hears you saying that now. And so it's, it's really beautiful. Thank you for throwing in the part of your daughter because now it's like three generations saying it because surely your mother is watching and she's excited to see everything you wear every day as we all are and to have you feel that and for your daughter to say it too. It's just beautiful. It's healing. That's healing right there. Yeah. In that. Yes. And this, you know, this is really helped me also look at that other deeper positive aspect of my mother in that she was so magnanimous and accepting of all people and Mm -hmm. she had no prejudice she had no bigotry that is a rare quality in any human Mm -hmm. and she passed that on to me and I have passed that on to my children and I think I'm thankful for that as well yes super important incredible and that is felt like I said that I because I know you I know that that is felt in your home your your home is welcoming and open and loving to everyone and and you're right that has to do with your mother and Mm -hmm. it's just amazing like I think about especially as I'm getting older I think about all of these places where I'm like whoa that happened how did I survive that or you know as a kid or as a teenager or whatever it's all these it's filled with all of these crazy stories and these crazy situations and then then I as I'm getting older I'm able to start to look at things and go oh right I'm like my mother in that way and it's it doesn't bring me the same grief and heartache as it used to yeah it actually brings me joy. Some of the things bring me joy. I mean, even in how I interact with my animal, with my dog, it's, I remember my sister saying to me once, like, you sound like mom. And I said, well, she is my mother. (laughs) So I probably am going to sound like her. And we kind of laughed about it because it's just, it's inevitable. And I, And, and your dog Nala is your daughter. I know. I love her so much. (laughs) She's your child. (laughs) She's my child. She's my only child. (laughs) And she's incredible. Um, 
Is there anything else, Shannon, that you think that you would like to share? Uh, anything you want to add to your story that's remarkable and a story of triumph and grace? Well, I think that we've covered so many bases here and I, I think that I've given all of the details that I wanted to give about the story and I don't tell this story very often. I don't, I do speak of my mother. I try now to speak of her in positive terms. I will recount some of the trials of having an alcoholic mother because I talk to and work with a lot of other alcoholics and people in recovery. Uh So uh, we have to tell our stories. Um, But I try not to speak them with the well, I no longer speak them with the resentment and the bitterness that I had. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that some people may hear this that don't know the story of the deep difficulties I experienced mm-hmm. and that I survived with my mom. And it might give some people a perspective and maybe a little more compassion towards me because I have some people in my life that I know don't think that highly of me. And in large part, it's because they don't know what I've been through mm-hmm. and, and what has actually happened because I don't really go around telling the story to a lot of people. It's, it is my personal treasure. Even though it's a dark treasure, it is still something that I guard carefully and I only show to people that I know I trust and that will honor it. So for me to put this out on a, on a larger scale and to a wider audience has taken a certain amount of courage Mm -hmm. and let the chips fall where they may. And at the same time, I know that there are other children who have been in dysfunctional homes with mentally ill parents who have tried to commit suicide and been successful Mm -hmm. in having and in killing themselves. And it is, it is maybe one of the worst traumas that you can experience mm-hmm. because you always blame yourself. The child always blames themselves for a, a parent's death, even a natural death or even a death by a car crash. A child blames themselves. They look, what could I have done differently? What could I have done better? Mm-hmm. But when your parent kills himself and tells you all your life that you're the reason, well, you know, <laughs> you can't not believe that. Right. But I want to tell other people because Suicide Prevention Month is coming up in September who have survived suicide and or suicide attempts that it is not your fault. Your loved one, your parent who has committed suicide or attempted suicide, even if they have blamed you straight up, they are unhappy because of things that happened to them when they were young and there it is not your fault you are not to blame you did not cause the unhappiness of your parent or your loved one that is a that is a situation between them and their soul mm-hmm. that they could not work out and they could not find a way out of their pain except to leave here and it has nothing to do with anyone else 
So I just like to leave with that. Thank you for sharing that. And I just wanted to add that a teacher once told me that it is a revolutionary act to heal. Healing is a revolutionary act. And I think that through sharing your story, you're creating a platform and an opportunity for people to revolutionize and heal. And that's incredible. That's worth sharing the story. That's worth opening up to that vulnerability of sharing. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking the time to open up and to share your dark treasure, as you call it, with everyone. It's very courageous. Thank you. This episode dealt with alcoholism and suicide. If you or someone you know is contemplating suicide, there are resources available online at www.cdc.gov suicide and over the phone at the National Suicide Prevention Hotline 1-800-273-8255. Thank you for listening to Rituals of Our Mothers. Again, I'm your host, Amy Jones, and I encourage and invite you to share your story. If you'd like to be interviewed, please direct message me on Instagram at Rituals of Our Mothers, and we'll speak soon. Ciao!